There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Philly Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted Philly. Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. This is the six-month anniversary of my little podcast. When I launched Twisted Philly, I wanted to share stories that meant something to me, stories that I loved or stories that scared me, stories that made me consider another perspective, sometimes stories that make me mad as hell or even make me cry, but all of them about this city, this state, Philadelphia, and Pennsylvania. This is a tale listeners have been requesting since day one. It has a little bit of history. It has a lot of true crime. It has some seriously dark, twisted shit. And there's even some movie trivia in here, too. I've got a little personal anecdote to share about this story that's twisted in its own right. It's a story I wanted to wait to tell until I had a number of episodes under my belt because I didn't want to start with a big boy out of the gate. This, my friends, is the story of Gary motherfucking Heidnick. Um, His middle name is actually Michael, not motherfucker, but that's what I call him. For those of you who listen, even though you don't like profanity, I should probably warn you, I could get a little more profane than usual in this episode, not because I want to be all like, ooh, I'm going to throw in some colorful language on purpose. It's not that, but I can't talk about this man without becoming aggressive. For me, the story of Gary Heidnick starts years after he committed his deviant, depraved, and seriously demented atrocities. So at that time, I was working at our local cable company, and there was a gentleman working in our office who was, I don't know, a marketing manager or something like that. He had a direct line, so any of his business associates could call his office directly. But there was this one guy who wouldn't use that number. He liked to call the main customer service number. Now, this was back in the day when the only channel you got besides the basic cable stations was HBO, and it wasn't even five bucks back then. We had maybe 20 customer service representatives, and all of them were women. Well, there was this man, and he was a colleague of that marketing guy. And like I said, instead of calling our marketing guy directly, this guy always called the main number. And so, of course, we would ask, may we say, whom is calling? And he would respond, Gary Heidnick. Occasionally, he'd say he was Ted Bundy, but most often, he would say he was Gary Heidnick. One day, I got so sick of that shit, I told him, I know who Gary Heidnick is. You are not Gary Heidnick because Gary Heidnick is in jail. And I think the last place Gary would be calling is the local cable company. Here, I was expecting that would put an end to this guy's bullshit, but it didn't. But Gary Heidnick isn't the sort of guy you use to make a joke. There's absolutely nothing funny about what he did or the legacy he left in Philadelphia. Oh 
Gary Heidnick was one of the most notorious serial rapists, serial torturers, and murderers in the United States in the late 80s. And certainly, here in Philadelphia, he was the boogeyman. Gary was eventually caught and arrested in 1987, and we'll come back to that because there is a motherload of horrific events leading up to his capture. But when this story broke, it was terrifying. I was a kid that grew up spending considerable time in the city because my father worked in the city. He lived in the city when he was young. I knew all the back roads in and out of Philadelphia, and I never really had a fear of the big city because I was raised not to fear the big city. I was raised to be smart about Philadelphia and to know where I am, especially when I'm visiting the city alone. To this day, when I'm walking the city alone at night, I walk like someone you don't want to mess with. Now, I have no idea if people actually perceive me that way, but so far that shit seems to be working out okay. I was 17 when Gary Heidnick was arrested, and every news station in Philadelphia was covering stories of his torture house. And torture doesn't even begin to describe it. For all the street smarts with which I was raised, after we learned about Gary, I was afraid to go into Philadelphia. It was as if Gary's story was larger than life, and it meant there had to be other Garys keeping women chained up in basements. There had to be other Garys waiting to snatch unsuspecting young women from the streets and bring them home for his despicable pleasures. Gary Heidnick's crimes happened right around the same time as Philly Corpse collector Harrison Marty Graham, maybe a year before. But it was Gary who got all the press. Why? Well, probably because he was white and he was rich. You'd never have known it to look at him or to look at his home, which was called the House of Horrors. But this man had over a half a million dollars in investments by the time he was arrested. So by today's standards, if you measure it against the Consumer Price Index, we're talking like $1.2 million. And he lived and looked like a homeless guy. He looked like he was down on his luck. He was disheveled. His house was a mess, his clothes, he was a mess, but not exactly unattractive. Again, what the fuck is wrong with the world when some of our sickest individuals, especially sexual sadists, are decent-looking guys who look like they would show up with wildflowers on a first date, except for his cars? Gary had an old Rolls-Royce, and it was a thing of beauty. It was your typical old-fashioned Rolls with the iconic hood ornament, and he also had a huge white Cadillac Coupe de Ville. Those cars were massive. So if you didn't see where he lived on Marshall Street in North Philly, and if you didn't get a good glimpse of his clothes, if you just saw him driving around Philly in the caddy, especially the ladies were like, who's that guy? Also, unlike Marty Graham, Gary was smart. Where Marty was severely learning disabled with an IQ of below 70, Gary would be considered highly gifted, if not even genius, on some IQ scales. He had an IQ of 148, but he didn't act like a genius because he dropped out of high school, he attended military school, he dropped out of there too. He joined the army in the early 60s with visions of becoming a sergeant, but Gary didn't like the military either. He didn't like being stationed in Germany. He didn't like being a medic. He fashioned himself something more important, and he was looking for a role that was more exciting than just a medic. Those who were close to Gary Heidnick at the time say that he had a complete mental breakdown while he was in Germany. Gary said it's because the army experimented on him with LSD. Whether or not that's true, there is documented proof from the late 40s all the way up till the mid-70s during the Cold War that the Army tested psychochemical warfare at a place called Edgewood Arsenal in Maryland. 
And according to an article in the New Yorker magazine, in the 1960s, the Army Intelligence Office expanded the work that Arsenal was doing with LSD, and they started testing the drug as an enhanced interrogation technique in Europe and in Asia. So it's entirely possible the Army could have tested LSD on Gary Heidnick while he was stationed in Germany between 1961 and 1962. The breakdown definitely led to his discharge from the military. Once Gary recovered, he saw the breakdown as a way to make money. And so he continued feigning mental illness so he could file for permanent disability and collect a check from the government every month. Gary Heidnick wasn't a native of Philadelphia. He was born in Ohio and he settled in Philadelphia sometime after he was discharged from the army. Like so many tales of abusers, Gary was abused as a child himself. His parents divorced when he was about two years old, and then he and his younger brother Terry played a game of ping pong, being sent back and forth to live with their mother and stepfather, and then with their father and stepmother. Besides the abuse Gary and his brother suffered at the hands of his father, when Gary was just about six years old, he suffered a pretty severe head injury after falling out of a tree. Now, some of his family members believe that head injury was the root of his problems with mental illness. His behaviors started to change after that accident, and you can probably guess what he started doing even as a little boy, hurting animals. Now, why he chose Philadelphia as the place to set down roots once he got out of the army, I actually have no idea. His family was Pennsylvania Dutch, and there's huge Pennsylvania Dutch communities right outside of Philadelphia, so I don't know, maybe that had something to do with it. I wish like hell he hadn't decided to live in Philly but I also feel bad saying that because then that means Gary's House of Horrors would have just set up shop in some other state. I think no matter where he landed, everyone who came into contact with him was bound to suffer. There's debate about Gary's mental health, and we'll get into that in a little bit more detail further down the episode. Gary definitely had a breakdown while he was in the Army, and no doubt what he suffered as a child had an effect on him in his adult life. The medications he was given in the army for his breakdown while he was in Germany were meds that patients are given for schizoid personality disorder, but technically the army never diagnosed him. And anyone who knew him after he got out of the military, well, Gary straight up told them he was feigning mental illness so he could collect a lifetime of disability benefits. Maybe it was easy for him to fake mental illness because he was truly suffering from some form of mental illness and didn't want to admit it because that didn't align with his personal opinion of himself. Something that spoke to both, I think, his sanity and possible insanity was the United Church of the Ministers of God. That was Gary's church. And no, I don't mean the church that he got in his car and drove to each Sunday morning. I mean the church he founded in his disgusting house, and he appointed himself the bishop. Neighbors of Gary's reported seeing large groups of people come into his house on Sundays to worship. They were people who wouldn't question a creepy guy in a cleric's collar preaching out of a dirty house with dollar bills and pennies glued to the walls like some form of look-how-rich-I-am wallpaper. They were also people who could be easily persuaded to make donations, regardless of how little money they had to give. Gary prayed on the weak, and he prayed on his very own neighborhood. And we're not talking pray, like P-R-A-Y, hallelujah, praise the Lord. We're talking pray, P-R-E-Y, like I'm going to stalk your ass for my own pleasure. That church was a huge windfall for Gary. The church, plus his meager disability payments and a shrewd mind for investing, is what helped Gary amass his half-million-dollar fortune. 
There's a copy of a letter Gary sent his stockbroker in 1983 that reads, Dear Mr. Kirkpatrick, I would prefer you send church mail to the United Church of the Ministers of God, care of Bishop Gary M. Heidnick. I saw that Tasty Cake hit $11 yesterday, and I hope we got our 2,000 shares that I previously ordered. Thank you. Respectfully, Bishop Gary Heidnick. Yeah, he was buying stock in Tasty Cake, a Philadelphia company. To me, all of this points to a highly functioning mind, a methodical mind, a mind that could be calculating as fuck. Someone who planned and created elaborate schemes for his own gain. Whatever mental health issues he may have had, I don't think they outweighed his ability to function at an extremely high level. So there's some background on Gary. You know me, I have to dive into the history of everything. And so now we're going to fast forward to 1987. This is where shit gets dark. And I mean seriously dark. Normally, I don't go into as much detail as I'm going to share in this story. But there is almost no way to tell the story of Gary Heidnick's House of Horrors without giving you some detail. If abuse, kidnapping, anything like that is a trigger, this would be the time to step away and not finish the episode. And if you need to do that, I absolutely respect your decision, and I thank you for listening this far. On March 24, 1987, Philadelphia police received a call from a hysterical woman. She was telling a wild, unbelievable story. Her name was Josefina Rivera. Now, Josefina claimed she'd been held hostage for four months in a dirty house in North Philadelphia, chained in a pit with other women, at least two of whom were dead. They'd been shackled, beaten, raped almost every day, tortured and electrocuted. At first, Philadelphia police didn't believe her, but they picked her up at 6th and Oxford Streets anyway, which is about two blocks from Cecil B. Moore Avenue. You guys remember who lived on Cecil B. Moore, right? The Cookie Monster. The Corpse Collector. Marty Graham. What the fuck is wrong with this section of Philadelphia? When the police met Josephina on the corner in North Philly, she told them Gary Heidnick was parked nearby in his famous white Cadillac. So the police drove a few blocks up the road to Girard Avenue, and sure enough, there was Gary, sitting in his caddy. Now Josephina's story was starting to take legs. She knew the location of this man. She knew his name. She knew his car. She could provide a description of him. She could provide the address of the house. The police arrested him, and they got a warrant to go to his house, although they were still uncertain if they truly believed the gruesome story Josephina told them. Gary Heidnick lived at 3520 North Marshall Street in North Philadelphia. Yes, I'm sharing the address because I know some of you will find it online anyway, and I can't say I blame you. The house is very different today. It looks like it's been split into a duplex. The neighborhood around Gary's old house is different. There's absolutely no sign of the evil that once resided on that spot. But if you believe, like I do, that a place or a building or even the earth on which it stood can absorb pain and terror, then you would want to stay the fuck away from that spot. The first officer on the scene described Gary's house as intimidating. 
there were metal doors and bars on the windows. But that wasn't entirely uncommon for some neighborhoods in North Philadelphia where there were significantly high crime rates and problems with drugs. The property around the house looked like a dump. There was trash strewn all over the front lawn, old tires, God knows what else was lurking in those weeds. And it was loud. The television was on and it was blaring. Officers could even hear it through those thick metal doors. And they just arrested Gary parked at 6th and Gerard, so no one was home, right? Who was watching the television? The police entered Gary Heidnick's home. Josephina's claims of women chained in the basement were bizarre and almost impossible to believe. But if there was a possibility of women in danger, they had to get inside. The police made their way to the cellar, and they could hear women screaming. Once they opened the cellar door, they saw three half-naked women bound in heavy chains attached to a sewage pipe. One officer didn't head to the cellar. He instead went to the kitchen because Josephina Rivera claimed Gary Heidnick dismembered and saved body parts of earlier victims. The officer opened the refrigerator door and sure enough, there were body parts wrapped in plastic bags. There are horror stories about Gary's mail-order bride he brought over from the Philippines in 1985 and his girlfriend in the 70s. This wasn't his first run-in with police, nor was it the first time he let his wanton abuse and depraved desires destroy other people's lives. I'm not going to tell much about those other stories right now because this story, the crimes for which Gary landed in the ranks of people like Ed Gain, are bad enough. Actually, this story is worse, and everything happened in a span of four months. Gary Heidnick's House of Horrors began with Josefina Rivera, and it ended with Josefina Rivera. Josefina grew up in Philadelphia. As an infant, she was placed in foster care, and she was one of the lucky ones. She was placed with a good family who was still her family long after she aged out of the system. She didn't have a bad childhood, but the city took hold of her, and in her teens, she started messing around with drugs, messing around with guys. Before she knew it, she was a woman in her early 20s with a drug addiction that she supported through prostitution. She had two children of her own who were taken by the state and placed in foster care, and like so many parents in her situation, all she wanted to do was get her life back on track and get her kids back. Josephina met Gary Heidnick the night before Thanksgiving in 1986. She had a fight with her boyfriend and walked out of the house. She was out hustling, trying to make some money, trying to do anything she could to get out of the circumstances that she was in. And up pulls a guy in a shiny white Cadillac. For someone turning tricks, a car like that meant dollar signs. Gary took Josephina to McDonald's, which is strange and something he often did with women. He took them to the Golden Arches. He took them somewhere familiar, somewhere well-lit, where everyone could see his face. He eased them into feeling comfortable with him. They soon left, and Gary took Josephina to his house on Marshall Street, where his classic Rolls Royce was parked in the garage behind the house. And it didn't make sense. Here's this guy trolling the streets for company. He's got two big, fancy, expensive cars, and he lives in squalor. Once they got home, they had sex. I mean, that's what she was there for, right? And once they were finished, Gary came up behind her and strangled her. Guy had picked me up at 2nd and Gerard um, the day before Thanksgiving. He took me to his house. We went upstairs and um, we had sex. And afterwards, 
I was going to dress him. He came up behind me and started choking me. And he started choking me. I don't know. I guess it happened so fast. All I can remember was like a film projector of things that were going on in my life was like, you know, just flipping back. Josephina may have lost consciousness for a bit. Everything was happening so fast and he was out of control. The situation was completely out of control. Gary handcuffed her wrists behind her back and dragged her to the basement. He tossed Josephina on a filthy mattress and put a metal cuff on her ankle. Then he took um, muffler clamps and put the muffler clamps around my ankles with this chain. And then he used crazy glue to hold the nuts on. And he dried it with a hair dryer. So when I was in there, I was like all cramped up and stuff. And I'm trying to, you know, and I'm like still screaming and hollering because I couldn't breathe because I had asthma and stuff. And I'm like, get all this dirt. And then like, I couldn't, I didn't have any room to move and stuff. So he comes back downstairs and he, he like t- pulls me out of the hole by my hair. And he has a stick and he's just beating me with this stick. And then he puts me back in there. That was day one of Josephina's confinement. Day one of over 100. Day one of daily rapes. Day one of beatings. Day one of watching Gary dig and dig and dig. He'd removed concrete from the center of the basement floor to create a pit. It couldn't even be called a hole in November 1986 when he tried to put Josephina in the ground. She had to lie down and it wasn't even deep enough for her to sit up. When Gary put plywood over the hole and heavy bags and weights on the plywood to keep Josephina from slipping out, she cried. She couldn't breathe. She couldn't move. The hole wasn't even as big as a coffin the first time Gary shoved her into it. He pulled her out of the hole by her hair, and he beat her. Josephina learned fast to do what Gary said and save herself a little pain. While he dug to widen that hole and eventually create a pit big enough to hold four women, he talked about wanting a family. Gary Heidnick told Josefina Rivera he wanted kids, and she was going to give him kids. And so would other women. With each bag of dirt he removed from the basement, he talked about the big family he wanted. He told Josefina he'd get as many as 10 women in this basement and get every one of them pregnant, and they'd all stay with him to raise his kids. That was day two of Josefina's confinement. There was some comfort in knowing since he wanted her to give him children, he may not kill her. At least not right away. Gary left Josephina alone sometimes. Eventually, he left all of them alone for periods of time. Early in her confinement, Josephina managed to loosen one of the ankle cuffs. I guess that crazy glue didn't hold so well after all, did it, Gary? She was able to get as far as a small basement window and pull herself up out of the window, but she couldn't get away. Josephina screamed for help, and the only person who heard her screams was Gary Heidnick. He grabbed Josephina, he pulled her back inside, He put her back in the pit that still wasn't big enough to hold a human. He put plywood on top and covered it with weights so she couldn't get out. It was during one of these periods in the shallow pit that Josephina realized she wasn't alone. She heard someone crying above her. She heard chains and footsteps. She had a roommate. When she came out of the pit, she met Sandy Lindsay, a mentally disabled woman. Josephina learned Sandy considered Gary a friend. She'd known him for years and had an on-again, off-again sexual relationship with him. Gary offered Sandy money to have his child, but she turned him down, so he took her. He brought her to the basement, chained her up just like he did Josephina, and he repeatedly raped them both. Me and Sandra, for the first month, me and Sandra stayed there by ourselves. 
we didn't take any baths, we didn't comb her hair, right? We spent most of the time in the hole. A few days after Sandy showed up at Gary's basement, her family showed up at his door. They knew about her relationship with Gary Heidnick and suspected he had something to do with her disappearance, but Gary wouldn't let them in the house. So Sandy's mother went to the police. She told Philadelphia police in early December 1986 that she believed her daughter was being held captive by a man named Gary. She even gave police his address. They went to 3520 Marshall Street, but no one ever answered the door. Police tried checking out spots where Sandy was known to hang out, like that McDonald's in West Philly where Gary liked to bring women. But no one knew where Sandy was, and when police asked about a man named Gary, they were given a different last name, even though they had his address and had been to his house. They couldn't find a man named Gary Heidnick, so they dropped it. Sandy was disabled. Her family was poor. They were from a section of the city filled with drugs and crime and blight, so why waste their time? On December 22nd, Lisa Thomas showed up. Gary found Lisa walking one night in Philadelphia, and he assumed she was a prostitute, but she wasn't. She was an attractive young woman walking to a friend's house. Lisa was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Gary offered Lisa a ride, and accepting that ride was the worst mistake she ever made. And strangely, Gary did actually drive Lisa Thomas to her friend's house, and he waited outside until she was done. Then he offered to take her to dinner. After dinner, Gary took Lisa shopping. He gave her 50 bucks to buy clothes. Then Gary invited Lisa back to his house to watch a movie. It sounds a little like a date, like a reasonable, simple first date, except the man thought you were a prostitute, and he has two other women chained in his basement in a pit right now. Lisa fell asleep watching a movie on Gary's couch. When she woke up, she was naked, and Gary was raping her. After he finished, she told him she wanted to go home, and just like Josephina, he choked her. He handcuffed her. He dragged her to the basement where Sandy and Josephina were in the pit covered with that plywood. He let them out. He made them all dinner, introduced them to Lisa, and told them all to get to know one another. That's how these three women spent Christmas in 1986. Daily beatings when they cried or screamed for help. Naked, except for a shirt so Gary could quickly rape them. Being starved wrapped in chains, huddled together for warmth or comfort or safety. They were all young. They were all African-American. They were all in pain and terrified. They were all each other had. Lisa's mother reported her missing, and Philadelphia police said, she's not missing. She's an adult. She's over 18, and by law, she could come and go as she pleased. She wasn't missing. She probably just left. Well done there, Philly. Well done. The dynamic of the basement changed in early January 1987 when Gary Heidnick brought home a woman named Deborah Dudley. Deborah was 23. She was a little older than Sandy and Lisa, but younger than Josephina. And Deborah fought back. She questioned everything. She questioned the chains. She questioned the pit. She questioned why these women were following Gary Heidnick's orders. Why weren't they fighting back? Deborah fought back, and boy, did she pay for it. She got beat so much more than the other women. And then Gary started to use Deborah as a way to turn the women against one another. When Deborah acted out, she didn't just get beat. They were all beaten. It sounds like something from the military, not the beatings themselves, but the concept to punish all for the infractions of one. When Gary had to leave them, he would put one of the women in charge, and she was given authority over the other women. So turning to each other for solace 
was really no longer an option. Gary Heidnick created an environment where turning on one another would put them in his good graces. Something happened in the hole. By this time right there, everybody had, like, was in a rank. All of a sudden now, you know, first in charge, second in charge, third in charge. So he was running out of room in the hole to fit everybody. Since I was there first, it gave me seniority over everybody else that he would leave me in the basement and put everybody else in the hole and at least to be in charge of everybody down in the hole or whatever. I cannot even imagine a situation like that. I, I can't imagine how you handle any of this. And this was their daily routine. Chains. Beatings. Time in the pit. Beating one another. Being raped by Gary Heidnick. Being forced to have sex with one another. For Josephina, it had been almost two months. For Sandy and Lisa, it had been just weeks. And for Deborah, it was only days. Josephina began to see an opportunity. When she behaved, Gary put her in charge of the other women. He occasionally took her out of the house with him, and this added to the complex relationship between these women. It increased and heightened the sense of mistrust. Josephina was still getting raped and beaten and thrown in the pit. It's not like she was treated better very often, but sometimes, and there was a reason for her behavior. If Gary Heidnick took Josephina Rivera outside with him, maybe she could get away. Even though he had four prisoners, Gary wasn't done capturing women. On January 18th, Jacqueline Askins was added to the group. She was only 18 years old, and she was already a prostitute. She was beautiful and tiny. She was so small. In fact, the shackles he used on everyone else were too big for Jacqueline. They slipped off her ankles. He had to use handcuffs to chain her ankle to the septic pipe in the middle of the room. That night, he didn't just bring home another woman to help him build his massive family. He brought home Chinese food and champagne, which made no fucking sense. These women survived for days without food. Sometimes they would get sandwiches. Sometimes they would get water and crackers. Sometimes they would be given dog food and other times nothing at all. But Gary wanted to celebrate. It was Josephina's birthday and he suspected Sandy was pregnant. After months of raping these women, Gary was certain he'd fathered a child with someone, and Sandy seemed to be showing signs of pregnancy. You'd think that if Gary Heidnick believed one of the women was pregnant, he might have treated her a little better. I don't know, maybe spared her the beatings, but no. One day in February in 1987, Sandy was in the pit, and she tried to move the plywood cover to get out. Gary caught her. So he handcuffed her by one arm to a beam in the ceiling, and he let her hang there for days. She got sick. She had a fever, and she wouldn't eat. She couldn't eat. She had absolutely no strength hanging by one arm from the ceiling. After days of this treatment, Sandy lost consciousness, and Gary threw her back into the pit. Sandy Lindsay never regained consciousness. She died in a dirt hole in Gary Heidnick's basement. What he did with her after that is horrific. The other women knew exactly what he did because shortly after Gary removed Sandy Lindsay's body from the basement, they heard electric saws. And as I mentioned earlier in the episode, police found human remains inside his refrigerator. I can't bring myself to share the details of Sandy's remains beyond that. I just can't. When a warrant was served to search Gary Heidnick's house, that day Josephina called the police and they found Gary sitting in his Cadillac a few blocks away. Frozen body parts were removed from the house, and there were still body parts on the stove. It's all in the police reports, 
And I just can't go any darker than that because I'm not sure if I'm going to keep crying or vomit. This is part of the reason why I've waited six months to tell this story. And I hope you're all not feeling like you're going to cry or vomit, but if you do, you're not alone. Nina from Already Gone recently told me that she thinks I'm an empath. I feel emotions so deeply sometimes it affects me physically. That's why in me you have a host who cries over certain stories. I cried when I did all the research for this episode, and I cried reading old copies of Philadelphia Inquirer stories from decades ago. I am a story in contradictions. I have this incredibly tough exterior, and I curse like a sailor. No surprise there, you guys know that. And I cry during TV commercials, and sometimes I cry when I podcast. Sandy Lindsay was the first to die in Gary's house, but she wasn't the only one. Deborah Dudley, the woman who fought like hell every day she was in Gary's house, which wasn't as long as most of the other women, but even a day was a tour of duty in hell. Deborah Dudley died in Gary's house too. Gary just got sick and tired of her fights, of her cries for help, of her trying to fight back when he took her upstairs to rape her. There was a period of a few days shortly after Sandy's death where Deborah stopped fighting. Gary took her upstairs, and when she returned to the basement, she could barely speak. Of course, the other women, you know, they wanted to know what happened. Nothing had really happened. Gary showed her something. He showed her what was in the refrigerator and what was on the stove, creating a nauseating stench that not only filled the house, but the neighborhood. And what she saw was enough to get Deborah to stop fighting, but only for a few days. She just couldn't give up. She would listen for Gary's footsteps so she'd know when he was coming and get ready to fight. Once Gary realized this, he stabbed the women in the ears with screwdrivers. He wanted to make it difficult for them to hear his comings and goings. Nothing was working. I was trying to find something that worked that would make them shut up to stop so oh, yeah, I could grasp it. What kind of infliction of pain on these women? I was trying to find something that would make them behave. But it was painful to them. I hope so. You know, that's what I was trying to achieve, you know, to make them behave. The survivors from Gary Heidnick's House of Horrors have hearing problems to this day because of what he did with a screwdriver. And as if the screwdrivers weren't bad enough, Gary Heidnick decided he needed something more serious than beatings to keep these women in line. He took an extension cord and he stripped one end of it and plugged the other end into the wall. Then he would touch the exposed end of the extension cord to the chains attached to Deborah's ankles. Deborah wasn't the only one to get Gary's homegrown version of electroshock therapy. Unfortunately, it was this sick, twisted torture that cost Deborah Dudley her life. Deborah Dudley died on March 18th, just about a week before Josefina Rivera was able to get away from Gary and call the police. Gary Heidnick had put Deborah Dudley, Lisa Thomas, and little Jacqueline Askins in the pit. Then he filled it with water. He put the plywood on top, but this time he drilled holes in it. He took the exposed end of the extension cord and slid it through one of the holes in the plywood. At first, it shocked all three women, and Gary just laughed. But when he did it a second time, the cord only touched Deborah's chain, and she took the entire voltage, which was made so much worse by the water in the pit. He used to fill uh, the hole up with water and take electrical wire 
he would take the wire while they're in the water and put it on their chains. And in the beginning, Deborah was, was hollering, and then she didn't holler anymore. He thought something was wrong with the wire. I said, look, look down there in that hole and see what's wrong with that girl. I said, because he kept saying, she keeps saying Deborah dead, that she laid face down in the water. So he finally listens up the board, and he says, yeah, she is laying face down in the water. And he just, like, picks her up, like, by her head, back of her head and something. He's like, yeah, he's right. She's dead. And now he's like, now all my troubles are over with. Now I can get back to having a peaceful basement. That same day, Gary forced Josefina Rivera to write a letter stating she helped him with Deborah Dudley's death. And he made them both sign it. And then he told Josefina and the other women that if anyone ever went to the police, he would use the letter against Josefina. He also told them that if he was ever caught, he would just feign mental illness. He knew how to do it because he'd been doing it for decades and getting away with it. Again, this makes me question his sanity and the medical claims of schizoid personality disorder. The things he did to these women, he delighted in what he did. He got joy out of torturing these women. You'd think he have to be insane, enjoying watching them in pain and degrading them. And during every minute of it, he knew exactly what he was doing. There were no voices telling him to harm others. And there are true crime programs from the 90s that I've watched that talk about Gary Heidnick's mental state. And the jury is out on that subject. When you read the correspondence between Gary Heidnick and his stockbroker and all of the paperwork he had to complete to set up his own church and the tax documentation, he was smart. He was clear. He was instructive. He didn't start a church because God told him to, for Christ's sake. He started a church because it gave him an opportunity to take advantage of financial tax breaks while simultaneously preying on the African-American community around him. What's seldom talked about when it comes to Gary Heidnick, at least not with any depth or serious consideration I've ever been able to find, is his victim type. All of these women were young. In some cases, they were very, very young. They were attractive black women who either were, or at least Gary thought they were, prostitutes. Some had emotional disabilities. Some had intellectual disabilities. All of them were trying to survive in a depressed community. Some were desperate for money, others for comfort, others for drugs, anything to ease the pain of their personal circumstances. Gary Heidnick purposely set up shop in a community that was already struggling. He went after women he thought no one would miss. And at least two of them were missed. Sandy Lindsay and Lisa Thomas's families both went to the police. Sandy's mother even mentioned Gary by his first name and had an address. And in both cases, Philadelphia police did little to find them because they were thought to be throwaways. Young black women from a community surrounded by drugs and crime. Oh, they must be prostitutes. They must be drug addicts. They must have just run away. Not all of them were, but would it have even made a difference? It shouldn't. Who cares if any of them were prostitutes or drug addicts? They were women. They were human beings and they mattered. I know some listeners don't like when hosts editorialize and I'm guessing those listeners don't listen to Twisted Philly because I editorialize the shit out of some episodes like I'm doing right now. I can't be neutral when I tell a story because I believe neutrality breeds injustice. I want you to know where I stand on a case like this. This story isn't just about Gary Heidnick's torture dungeon. It's about whom he chose to torture and why, and what the community did or didn't do about it until it was too late. On March 22nd, Gary Heidnick and Josefina Rivera put Deborah Dudley's body in a van, and they dumped it in the New Jersey Pine Barrens. 
That's a stretch of highway on the way to the Jersey Shore points, and it's filled with pine trees. It's actually quite beautiful. It's so dense and thick. There are stories for decades of mobsters dumping bodies in the Pine Barrens. And it's a really odd terrain because as you drive this stretch of highway, whether it's the Garden State Parkway or or the New Jersey Turnpike, you smell salt air from the ocean and you start to see some swampy areas and you're surrounded by pine trees. Once Deborah was gone, Gary needed another woman to replace her. Remember, he wanted 10. He'd had five with Josephina, Sandy, Lisa, Jacqueline, and Deborah. And just a day after disposing of Deborah Dudley's body, Gary picked up a sixth woman he found on the streets of Philadelphia, a young woman named Agnes. And just like everyone who came before her, Agnes was raped, stripped, and chained in the basement. Gary was frantic at this point. His behavior was becoming even more erratic than before, and six women weren't enough. He was frenetically searching for the next woman to complete his twisted harem. By this point, Josephina felt she had completely gained Gary Heidnick's trust. She spent more and more time in the upper floors of Gary's house and less time in the pit, more time outside with him when he ran errands. So she asked him if she could help him find the next victim. She asked Gary to let her visit her family. She'd been gone for four months, and she promised Gary there was someone in her family she could bring back to replace Sandy. Gary relented, and he said okay. He dropped her off at her house, and he parked a few blocks away, where she agreed to meet him a little later that night with another woman. Her boyfriend was still living there. The boyfriend she fought with on November 26, the day before Thanksgiving, in 1986, when she left the house because she was mad and she thought she could turn a few tricks, make some money, maybe buy a Thanksgiving dinner for her family. Her boyfriend opened the door and he was shocked to see Josephina. And when she told him where she'd been and what she'd gone through, he thought she was nuts. He thought she must have been living on the streets for months, doing drugs, and gone completely crazy. So Josephina ran to a payphone nearby and called the police. I really didn't realize how, how much Gary Heineck actually liked me and how much I was getting through to him until the last few days. I knew I was going to get out of there one way or another. I, I mean, that was like my ultimate goal was to make sure that I got out safely and he couldn't get to me and he couldn't get back to the other girls and get rid of them, you know. I'm going to skip most of the detail about Gary Heidnick's trial. There's not a lot to tell there anyway. Experts tried to say he was incompetent to stand trial, but there was so much about his life and his crimes, so much testimony, not only from victims, but from friends whom Gary Heidnick told he was milking the system, merely pretending to be crazy so he could collect those disability checks. No one really believed he was incompetent. The judge in Gary's trial is a name that should also be familiar to all of you by now, Lynn Abraham. She got the case of Lois Fakarson wrong, but she got Gary's case right. On July 1st, 1988, Gary Michael Heidnick was convicted of two counts of murder of the first degree, six counts of kidnapping, five counts of rape, four counts of aggravated assault, and two counts of involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. After the guilty verdict on two counts of murder for Sandy Lindsay and Deborah Dudley, Gary was sentenced to death for each conviction. Initially, his attorney, who was a pretty flashy fellow named Chuck Peruto, Chuck was known for taking on sensational cases. He filed motions to overturn the death sentences, but they were denied. 
So Chuck filed appeals, and then Gary Heidnick decided he didn't want to appeal the verdict, nor did he want to appeal his death sentence. What he did want was for the court to carry out his sentence as expeditiously as possible, but he didn't get what he wanted. He sat on death row until July 6, 1999, 11 years after he was convicted, 12 years after he repeatedly tortured, beat, and raped Josefina Rivera, Sandy Lindsay, Lisa Thomas, Jacqueline Askins, Deborah Dudley, and Agnes Adams. 12 years after he murdered Sandy Lindsay and Deborah Dudley. And part of those delays were due to his 21-year-old daughter, Maxine White. Maxine was the product of a short, violent relationship he'd had over 20 years ago with an old girlfriend. She was able to block Gary Heidnick's execution for two years under the premise that he was mentally unstable and unable to participate in his own defense, unable to fully understand what a death sentence meant. But eventually, even the Supreme Court, which she petitioned on the day of his execution, wouldn't lift a finger to stop Pennsylvania's decision to execute Gary Heidnick. Gary is infamous for so many reasons. One of them is that he was the last person put to death in the state of Pennsylvania. Sometimes I don't quite know how I feel about the death penalty. I've often said I think I have to consider each case as unique and individual. Look at the circumstances of the crimes. Look at what happened to the victims and what did it do to society. But I know exactly how I feel about this case. Death was too good for Gary Heidnick. During the trial, the defense attorney tried to rip Josefina Rivera apart. And some of the media did that too. They called her an accomplice. They called her his wife. They talked about Stockholm Syndrome. But she was a victim just like the other women. And if she hadn't earned Gary's trust the way she did and waited for an opportunity to get away and get help, Lisa, Jacqueline, and Agnes may have also died at Gary's hands. And other women may have that he had yet to capture. Three weeks before Josephina got away from Gary, three weeks before Philadelphia police raided his house with a warrant and found three women chained in his basement, Three weeks before the city of Philadelphia found out about Heidnick's house of horrors, 23-year-old Francina Waddell met Gary Heidnick. She fit some of his profile. She was a young, attractive African-American woman. She was slender, but she wasn't suffering from a disability or a drug habit, nor was she a prostitute. Gary, of course, started his conversation, asking her to sleep with him, and she was offended and gave him the brush off. But Gary apologized. He persisted. He invited her to come back to his house to watch a movie. He had that big, flashy, white Cadillac Coupe de Ville, and she said yes. That is almost exactly what happened to Lisa Thomas. Francina went with Gary to his home on Marshall Street, and she managed to get out of his house in about a half an hour. The money taped to the walls of his home gave her the creeps. He asked to show her his Rolls Royce, but she didn't want to go into the garage. He invited her up to his bedroom to show her a photograph, and instead, before she even got in the room, she saw handcuffs. So she called her mother, she gave her mother the address of where she was, and she left. Francina had no idea how close she came to being number seven, but a few weeks later, she found out. And there was also an inquest into how the Philadelphia police handled this case because there were so many opportunities and reasons to suspect Gary Heidnick of nefarious, fucked up shit. While I focused primarily on the women he abducted between November 1986 and March 1987, 
I mentioned his mail-order bride. Gary had a wife. She was a diminutive woman he brought over from the Philippines named Betty. Betty was also a virgin, which was one of Gary's primary requests when he solicited a marriage company to find him an international bride. The first week of marriage seemed to go okay, although the living arrangements were odd, as there was a mentally ill young African-American woman in the bedroom when Gary first brought Betty home. He told Betty the woman was a tenant who would soon be leaving, but it turned out more women were coming to stay. Gary would have sex with multiple women and force Betty to watch and sometimes force Betty to have sex with them. He beat her. He raped her. She left Gary in early 1986, and he was charged with spousal rape, indecent sexual assault. But the case was dropped because Betty Heidnick never showed up for the preliminary hearing. And then there were the years Gary Heidnick spent in prison in the late 70s and early 80s. In 1978, Gary was dating a woman named Anjanette. Anjanette was learning disabled, and her sister was in a mental hospital, places Gary himself spent some time in in the 70s. Gary and Anjanette signed her sister out one day for a day trip, and she didn't return to the hospital because Gary locked her in his apartment, raped her, sexually assaulted her in other ways that I am not even going to begin to describe. He didn't feed her, he beat her, and he gave her a venereal disease. Gary Heidnick was charged with kidnapping, rape, unlawful restraint, false imprisonment, involuntary deviate sexual intercourse. Are you picking up the theme here? Because these are all the same charges that he got hit with in 1987. Oh, except in 87, he also got hit with two counts of first-degree murder. He pled not guilty. (laughs) Get the fuck out of here with that bullshit. Prior to his trial, he was evaluated by mental health professionals who found him to be manipulative and have psychosexual issues, but still quite competent. Gary was sentenced to between three to seven years in prison for this barrage of crimes in 1978, but his sentence was overturned on appeal. By that time, he'd already served three years in a mental institution, and he never spoke to anyone. He preferred to communicate via notes just to be an ass pain. Gary Heidnick had a history of violent sexual abuse of women, mostly towards African-American women. In fact, all except his wife were African-American, and many of them were either mentally or emotionally disabled or both. He had a history of imprisoning women against their will. He had this bizarre obsession with getting women pregnant and spreading his seed. Women were often seen going into Gary's house and never leaving. And then there was the smell. His neighbors called police the smell was so bad. And this was in winter. This was not the summer of 89 when corpse collector Marty Graham was trying to hide the stench of decaying bodies in the Philly heat and humidity. This was February, just about a month before everything blew up in Gary's face. It would not have been in time to save Sandy Lindsay because the stench was Sandy. It was Sandy in the oven and on the stove. That stench and the calls to police could have saved Deborah Dudley if the police would have demanded entrance to his home or asked just a few more questions when Gary said he burnt a roast, but they didn't. And it wasn't just the smell, it was thick smoke and multiple neighbors complained. This guy had a twisted, disgusting history, mental health issues or not, a history of abusing women. And the police said every neighborhood has odors. That's a direct quote from one of the first stories about this case in the Philadelphia Inquirer back in 1987. The East Detective's Office said as far as they knew, Gary Heidnick 
had never come to their attention before Josephine Rivera called them describing the four months of hell she survived. That's interesting because when Gary was charged with spousal rape, in 1986, he was living on Marshall Street. He was living in that same house. It would have been the same precinct that dealt with that case. Josefina Rivera was interviewed by The Mirror in 2014, almost 30 years after her ordeal. In that interview, she was quoted as saying, I'll pass by a hole where some workmen are digging up the road, and I won't think anything of it at the time. But then at night, I'll get an overwhelming sense of panic because it's triggered an association. Or I could spot something as innocent as a screwdriver or a chain. These things are just ordinary, everyday objects to most people. But for me, they're enough to set off a depressive episode that lasts months. When Josefina Rivera left Gary Heidnick's basement, she was 26. She said her time in the cellar changed her forever. Recovery was a long, uphill battle for Josefina. She returned to drugs for a period of time. She lost custody of her children. Finally, in 2010, she got the right therapy, and she'd been off drugs for a number of years. She was even able to reunite with her two youngest children who'd been given up for adoption. Uh, Ricky and Zornay, I, I put up for adoption right after the Heineck thing happened. At the time, the foster parents and Zornay and Ricky were very close, and they were in a loving home. I personally, mentally or physically, wasn't mentally capable of taking care of them. So my decision for them to allow them to adopt them was, you know, was a good thing. Today, she's 56 and a grandmother. She wrote a book called Cellar Girl. It's on Amazon if you want to pick it up. And if there's anyone who can understand even a fraction of what the three young women held captive by Ario Castro went through, it's Josefina Rivera. Gary Heidnick is more than a demon. He's one-sixth of the inspiration for Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs. Now, some people in Philly say he is the inspiration for Buffalo Bill, but that simply isn't true. Any true crime junkie knows there are elements of so many famous serial killers in Buffalo Bill. Ed Gain, Ted Bundy, Jerry Brudos, and others. But that hole in the ground? That was all Heidnick. In 1988, a Philadelphia band called The Serial Killers released a limited edition single that was called Heidnick's House of Horrors. With each hand-numbered single, the lucky buyer received a bag of dirt with a certificate of authenticity claiming the dirt came from Gary's Marshall Street home in North Philly. There's another band called Church of Misery that released a song, Brother Bishop, all about Gary Heidnick in 2013. There are bands in both Jersey and Philly who take their names from this sick, twisted fuck. One of the bands is just called Heidnick. The other calls themselves Heidnick Stew. But only the serial killers from Philly sold bags of dirt from Gary's house with their album in 1988. I would love to meet the notary who authenticated the certificates that came with those bags. And this, Twisters, is the end of our tale. I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. This is the longest episode I've ever shared, and it was darker than most of my true crime episodes, but there was really no way to avoid it. Trust me when I tell you, I did avoid some of the most gruesome details. Yeah, there are parts of this story that are way worse than what I described. Like the women murdered by corpse collector Harrison Marty Graham, like Philly's unknown children who were abandoned in a bag and a trunk, little Jarrell Willis and Aaliyah Davis. The women Gary Heidnick captured, the two women he murdered, were almost forgotten. Gary's crimes inspired a movie villain. 
not a documentary about the disparity between attention and effort for victims of color, victims with mental illness. Philadelphia has definitely gotten better about this. Truly, they have. And when I think about cases that get all the notoriety across the country, it is more often a certain type of victim. And I think that is what contributed to the city's inactivity when family members of two of Gary's victims went to the police. Yeah, I know I'm fifth period quarterbacking. We can't change what happened to Sandy Lindsay or Deborah Dudley or any of the survivors. We can only try to change the future. Before I go, I would like to take a minute and thank my February Patreon supporters. Some of you may have noticed I launched some new content on Patreon a few weeks ago, and each month I'm going to be launching two Patreon-exclusive episodes. They're not really going to be like Twisted Philly episodes. They're going to be get-to-know Twisted Philly. It's basically going to be me talking about my week, about the news in Philadelphia, about stories I'm working on, and just a chance for you to get to know the show and your host a little bit more. So thank you to True Crime Fan Club, the Generation Y podcast, Lewis, Jennifer, Brooke, Nicole, Ronnie, Brooke V, Megan, Kathy, and Kyle. Thank you all so much. Your support means more than you can possibly imagine, and I'm so grateful. As always, thank you for listening, and thank you to Emmy Sarah for the music you heard in this week's episode. You can download Emmy's music on iTunes. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.